Well, most of us, I, I think it's actually all of it, all of us, but I'm going to say most of us just in case literally the most secure person on the planet happens to be joining us this morning. But most of us, given the opportunity with a quick snap of the fingers, would change something about ourselves. In fact, I bet most of you, almost as soon as that video began, there was something or some things that you would change about you. And so I want to ask you that question. You don't need to ask, uh, answer out loud, but what would you change about you? For some of us, I think it would probably be something physical. For others of us, it might have to do something more with your personality, maybe something that you view as a character flaw, but most of us would indeed change something. When I was younger, uh, like third, fourth, fifth grade, late elementary school, I I thought the coolest thing ever were sideburns. Like, it's not like code for anything else, literally facial hair grown on the side of men's faces. And as I was like thinking about that this, uh, as I was preparing for this message, I don't really know why. It wasn't like my dad had sideburns or one of my brothers or like an uncle or anything. I actually didn't know a single person that had sideburns, which was maybe the allure of it, that it was like this distant thing that I would see certain men have. And I, I really wanted to get sideburns. And, and when I was in the third grade, I went to camp at a place called Spring Hill, a place that a lot of you are familiar with. And uh, I, a dream really came true for me. My counselor that summer had sideburns. And I was just like enamored with this guy for the entire week. He must have thought that I was such a weird little kid as he caught me staring at him like all these different times throughout the week. And, and by the end of the week, I finally mustered up the courage to do something. I asked the question that was begging to be asked. I rather sheepishly approached him and I asked him the question, how do you get sideburns? I didn't realize there was like something that just came along with puberty and like, you know, facial hair would start growing. I thought there was something more to it. And he being quick witted without skipping a beat looked at me and he said, Shay, well, it's really, really simple. Every single morning I wake up, I get a little Rogaine on my fingertips and I rub it on the side of my face. And I was like, okay, that makes a lot of sense. And so the end of the week came, my parents picked me up from camp. They want to hear about all the incredible activities I participated in. They want to hear all these new things that I learned about Jesus. And I didn't want to talk about any of that. All I wanted to do was convince my mother to drive me to CVS so I could get some Rogaine and start getting myself some sideburns. If you would have asked third grade Shay that question, what would you change about you? It would be that I could grow sideburns. But as we get older, chances are what you would change about yourself has probably evolved. If I could change one thing about myself today... It wouldn't be that I could grow sideburns, which is kind of ironic. I still really can't grow them. Uh, if I'm being really, really vulnerable, if I could change one thing physically about myself, it would be my nose. I've always been a little bit self-conscious about that. Uh, if there's one thing that I could change in here, it would be that, that I would be a more patient human being. I genuinely think I might be the most impatient person that has ever walked the face of the earth. Case in point, my wife and I uh, were driving around together not too long ago, a couple weeks ago, and we came to a four-way stop, and the person ahead of us turned slower than I, I would have liked them to, And I was like ready to lose my mind in the car. My wife's looking at me like, are you serious right now? And as I've gotten older and older, I resent that more and more about myself. Chances are every single one of us, given the opportunity, you would change something about you. Hold on to that thought. We're going to come back to it here in just a minute. I do just want to quickly pause, though, and say thank you to all of you for showing up here today. Uh, We're so glad that you decided to kind of make Grumlaw a part of your Easter celebration. So honestly, thank you, thank you, thank you for walking through our doors. Uh, We know you could have been, even at a lot of different churches this morning. And for whatever reason, maybe you saw something on Facebook. Uh, Maybe your wife saw something on Facebook and she drug you here. Maybe somebody invited you here. Maybe you were bribed. Some of you are probably pretty excited about walking through our doors this morning where there are others of you that are sitting here today and you frankly cannot wait for this whole thing to wrap up. 
It's okay, we know you're sitting out there, it does not hurt our feelings. Because no matter who you are, no matter why you are here, uh, we're so glad you ended up walking through our doors. We don't take that for granted. We recognize that even as an adult, it can feel a little bit intimidating to step into a new place. And so we're so glad you took that risk and you made Grumlaw a part of your week. I wanna tell you a story. That's one of my favorite stories. It's back in uh, July of 1982. This is a true story. A guy by the name of Larry Walters. Larry Walters was a California man who marched himself into an Army-Navy surplus store uh, and proceeded to purchase 75 used Army weather balloons. He then took these balloons, inflated them, attached them to a lawn chair, and then secured that lawn chair to the bed of his truck. He then solicited the help of of a couple of friends. Uh, They drove out into a relatively open area, and then he commanded one of his friends to untie the rope after he had climbed into the lawn chair. And he just kind of figured that he would just slowly saunter into the air and as he would later say, observe his neighborhood from a slightly different angle and thus gain a new perspective on life. Uh, The only things that he brought with him on this little voyage of his was a peanut butter sandwich, a six pack of beer, and a loaded BB gun. Listen to this, two and a half hours into his maiden voyage, the Los Angeles International Airport reported an unidentified flying object at, listen to this, 16,547 feet, three miles into the sky and 100 miles away from his original launch site. The pilot that originally went by him in the Boeing jet that was flying down at LAX said, uh, I don't really know how to describe this, but I'm pretty sure we just drove by a guy on a lawn chair. We think he's passed out and he has a gun. In a rescue mission (laughs) that would have made Chuck Norris proud, SWAT teams go up in a helicopter and they lasso and corral Larry safely back into the helicopter, bring him safely back to the ground where he was later issued a $4,000 ticket for the obstruction of airport traffic. His intention had been, just in case you are curious, is that when the rope was untied, he would just kind of glide into the air, and once he got to his desired elevation, he'd shoot a couple of the weather balloons with his BB gun, hover out at that level, kind of observe the earth for as long as he wanted to, spend his afternoon in the sky, drink his beers, and then when he was ready to come down, he'd shoot a couple more of those weather balloons and come safely back to the ground. I mean, what could go wrong with that plan? But what his friends would later describe is when they untied the lawn chair, it was like he was shot out of a cannon. (laughs) And he soon found himself at an elevation that he was not comfortable with, and so he admitted that he did the only thing that he knew how to do when he got stressed out, and that was to slam some beers. And so he drank four of those beers, not accounting for the blood alcohol difference at that level, and so he passed out. A local journalist would later ask Larry, lawn chair Larry as he came to be known, would you do it again? Larry, was it worth it? And how do you suppose Larry responded? No, you knuckleheads, he said no. He was like, absolutely not. And every single one of us, come on, we all have stories, probably not quite as dramatic as that, but probably more than we would like to admit where had somebody been sticking a microphone into our faces right after the fact and asked us this exact same question, was it worth it? We would have promptly, we would have quickly responded with a heck no, absolutely not. And as I thought about this, and I thought through some of my less than intelligent moments in life, some of my biggest regrets that I still look back on and I think that was definitely not worth it. It reminds me, and this is really 
what's at the heart of what we're going to be talking about today, and this probably shouldn't come as too much of a surprise because after all, today is Easter, that 2,000 years ago, your Savior died on a cross for you because you are worth it. Even though you might not feel worthy, even though nobody else might place that type of value on you, even though you may not have even asked for it, even though you constantly screw up, despite the fact that God literally knows everything about you, the good, the bad, and the ugly, he stamped worth it on you the day he died for you. Now today, it is obviously Easter, and I bet just about every single person in this room, no matter where you find yourself on this whole faith journey, whether you come to church all the time or you basically never come to church, whether or not you even call yourself a Christian, you're probably at least kind of familiar with what I just articulated. That, that, that God sent his, his one and his only son down to earth, born of the Virgin Mary, and there he spent his childhood under the roof of Joseph and Mary. And then after spending that time, those, those, those years developing and living under their roof, he, he went out and he gathered those disciples, those 12 guys that he would spend virtually every waking moment with. And he essentially launched his campaign, his, his earthly ministry, which only lasted about three years. And by the way, if you are sitting here today and you are skeptical of this whole Christianity thing, that cannot be overlooked. Jesus only spent about three years spreading what we now refer to as Christianity, and yet here we are 2,000 years later, and we're still talking about him. But after those three years, it quickly came to a halt, like a screeching halt, when he was killed on a cross, because as it turns out, the religious leaders of that day weren't too keen on the idea of somebody literally claiming to be the son of God. And this is so, so, so important to note. If you had every intention of walking in here today and not listening to a word that I was going to say, you made it up in your mind, you were just going to jack around on your phone, shoot, you would count ceiling tiles before you'd listen to me. I'm begging you, give me just five minutes of your time because this is so, so important. When Jesus died, those closest to him believed that he was dead dead. The people that knew him best, his 12 disciples, those guys that he spent literally every waking moment with, his own family members, his mother, his brothers, I mean the people that knew him best, they thought that he was dead and they thought it was going to stay that way. Even though they had witnessed some pretty incredible things, even though they had seen some pretty incredible miracles, even though he knew, they knew that he could draw a pretty massive crowd, even though he taught with authority in such a way that they had never heard anyone teach with before, they believed that when he was dead, he was dead dead and he was going to stay that way. They believed that he was a powerful speaker whose powerful speaking got him crucified. And I'm telling you, if you would have asked any of the disciples right after the fact, they would have looked you in the eye and said, I, I told you. I mean, we warned them. We told them not to go to Jerusalem. We told them that was going to be bad news. You don't understand. There were all these times where we would say these things and we'd shrink back and think, oh my gosh, Jesus, you got to shut up. You keep saying this stuff, you're going to get yourself killed. I mean, it's one thing if you share these things around us. I mean, we know you, but you don't really have like the relational equity with these massive crowds of people. Do you understand what you're saying? Do you realize how offensive some of these things sound? Don't say it around those religious leaders. They're going to kill you for this. You have no idea what they're mumbling about you behind your back. 
They believed he was not the Messiah. I mean, they were holding out hope. They thought that there was a chance, even though they had witnessed him do some pretty incredible things, even though they had seen him turn just a couple fish and a couple loaves of bread into enough food to feed thousands, even though they had watched him literally walk on water. I mean, imagine what that would have been like. Even though he took people who had been crippled their entire lives and suddenly they could walk, even though people who were blind their entire lives could suddenly see, even though they had watched all these incredible things, he died. And just like that, they're like, there's no chance that he can be the Messiah because the Messiah can't die. They believed that he was not the son of God. They were hoping that he was. They thought that there was like this tiny chance and they could recall that moment when Jesus first alluded to this and they and themselves even thought like, okay, that is out of control. We can't believe that you would say something like that. But again, they watched him do all this stuff. I mean, they watched the miracles. They heard him preach and they thought, okay, well, well maybe he actually is who he says that he is. But again, he died. And death cannot defeat God. Death cannot defeat the son of God. They believed that their lives were in jeopardy they were scared because everything that Jesus spoke about, and I'm telling you, this is so unique to Christianity. This is one of the things that sets Christianity apart from all the other world religions because Jesus would teach in such a way that it all hinged back to him. See, all these other religions, the, the leader of those religions, when, when those people, those prophets, when they died, it wasn't a big deal. They're like, okay, they just take on my teaching. My teaching lives on. But Jesus taught in such a way that it all hinged back to him. And so it was a house of cards. The minute that he died, so did all of his teaching. Everything that he had talked about, it suddenly lost credibility. It was all done. So they believed that their lives were in jeopardy. It all fell apart, and therefore, Jesus' closest followers lost faith in the end. They were scared. They were embarrassed. They were outlaws. If you would have asked any of them after the fact and said, hey, you're going to go spread the name of Jesus now? You're going to go spread his teachings? They would have looked at you like, no. You just see what happened to Jesus? That just got him killed and he's dead now, so it doesn't matter anymore. Everything that they were hoping for fell apart when he died. As it says there, it was the end. They knew he was dead. They watched it with their own eyes and they thought that it would stay that way. And this is why I'm a Christian. Because a few weeks later, those same cowards who abandoned everything they knew, everything they saw, and everything that they observed with Jesus, those same men, those same people that headed for the hills, the same people that ran away the minute that Jesus was killed, now they're out in the streets and they're telling everyone about him. I mean, they won't shut up about Jesus. And every single one of them, they had the same four points. They all had the exact same sermon outline. You killed them. God raised them. We've seen them. Say you're sorry. I mean, they're literally pointing their fingers in the faces of the very men that nailed Jesus to the cross. How are these men that suddenly lost all the confidence of the world who ran away, how do they have such confidence now? What would give them this feeling uh, to, to be able to look at these same people in the face and say, you killed them. God raised them. We've seen them say you're sorry. And 20 years later, a guy that goes by the name of Paul, 
Paul, who is responsible for spreading the name of Jesus around much of the ancient world. Paul, who is in fact the only reason that any of us even know who Jesus is. He's talking about Jesus in Athens, a guy who in Athens nobody would have ever heard of. And he's telling everyone that God has done something and it is for all people. God has done something in our midst. And as it says in Acts, these are Paul's words, he has given proof. This isn't conjecture. This isn't hypothetical. He says there is concrete proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Do you know why the early church survived? Why you're actually even sitting in this room this morning? Why there are so many people sitting here today that believe in Jesus? Why I'm a Christian? Why you really ought to be a Christian? Because when Jesus died, nobody believed. No one, not one person, his own mother lost faith. Everybody lost faith in the end, but then they saw something. They saw their risen savior and that right there changed everything. And for the first 40 years of Christianity, the message was the exact same. God has not simply said something. He has done something and it is for the entire world. He raised a man from the dead. That man, Jesus, died on a cross for you 2,000 years ago because he said, you are worth it. But he did not stay that way. We believe that something happened. And that right there, that is the foundation of the Christian faith. We believe that Jesus was crucified for our sin and God raised him from the dead. And guess what? We do not believe that because the Bible says so. In fact, the Bible was not even written for years and years after Jesus rose from the dead. It wasn't even put together to what we now refer to as the New Testament for hundreds of years later. But yet thousands and thousands of people became Jesus followers during that time, even though there was no B-I-B-L-E. They followed, they believed because eyewitnesses were running around telling everyone, okay, I know that this is going to sound absurd, but I'm telling you, I watched this guy die. He was as dead as dead gets. They rolled him into a tomb and he laid there for three days. And after those three days, he was walking around again. I touched him because I didn't believe it. We literally had breakfast with him on the beach. The church launched because of a resurrected savior. Those same men that ran away after he died were now on the front line spreading the name of Jesus, willing to die, and most of them would in fact be killed for their faith in Jesus because they saw a resurrected Savior. And we believe today for the exact same reason. We don't believe in a dead man. We believe in a resurrected Jesus. I, I talk about this all the time. I'm a simple man. Perhaps you're more complicated than me. But, but if a man predicts his own death, and he predicts his own resurrection, and then he actually pulls it off, I am just going to go with whatever that guy has to say. And you know what else that I've, I've figured out in my life? Once I came to, to, to grips with the great extent that God has gone to, not to pay me back, but to win me back, the, the absurd lengths that he has gone to, to show me that I am loved, that I am indeed worth it, that the only natural response to all of that 
The only natural response to what Jesus did on a cross is to live a life that is completely sold out for him. I don't have to, I get to. I'm embarrassed to, to admit that for much of my life, I lived up here. It felt like obligation, it felt like rules, but it's so much better than that. I get to, it is a privilege. It's why we started this church. I want more and more people to realize and recognize that truth. That there's this really unfortunate misconception in our Western society that being a Christian means constraints, means limits, it means rules that you're actually gonna miss out on life if you follow Jesus, and that frankly could not be further from the truth. If your version of Christianity is, is, is not one that is characterized by freedom and love and purpose, then you have the wrong version. In fact, you don't even have Christianity. You unfortunately have something that has been manipulated and twisted by human beings, but not what Jesus intended. It is worth it to live a sold out life for Jesus. The closer and closer I get to Jesus, the better my life becomes. And this is not just a me thing. There is a whole mess of people sitting in this audience right now that would agree with me on that. I have never been as happy and as content as I am right now. And guess what? I am not as rich as I've ever been. In fact, I'm making less money than I ever have in my life. Used to make a lot more money working in the medical field. My life is not as simple as it's ever been. It's arguably more complicated than ever. I have more on my plate than on a day-to-day -day basis than I ever have in my life. I'm not doing whatever I just want to do in the moment. I lived that life in, in, in college. I lived that life in high school. And guess what? I have no desire to go back. Following Jesus will undeniably make your life better and make you better at life. You will be a better husband. You will be a better wife. You will be a better brother. You will be a better sister. You'll be a better father. You'll be a better mother. You'll be a better boss. You'll be a better coworker. You will be a better friend. Jesus does not want us to change certain attitudes and certain behaviors and certain habits. He doesn't ask us to do certain things and not do other things because it sounds like the right thing to do or because he's some sort of a control freak. It's way better than that. It's because he's for you. He has your best interest in mind, and if you ever doubt that, remember that he died for you. And in that moment, he declared that yes, you, specifically you, are worth it. Does anybody remember these? I'm gonna go back in time a little bit here. Some of the guys nodding their heads right now. Remember these Beckett books? They're these magazines. I, I immediately ostracized better than 50% of the crowd because every woman is like, what in the heck is going on there? Okay, a Beckett book, uh, for those of you that don't know, it basically provides you with the estimated value of baseball cards. And so I, I used to get these Beckett books every once in a while and I would spread all of my baseball cards out in my room and I'd match them up with the Beckett book and I'd figure out just how rich I was. I was like, this is fantastic. I'm never gonna have to work a day of my life because I got millions of dollars here sitting in, in baseball cards. And it's crazy, the value of cards in here is you flip through it and I like definitely got sidetracked for like a good hour as I was preparing this message as I was like, oh my gosh, I gotta get this Willie Mays card. I'm gonna be rich. You know, like there's cards in here that are worth a nickel and there's cards in here that are worth tens of thousands of dollars. And so I'd sit there and carefully match them up. I'd look at the condition and how is that gonna dent in the value and all that. And I'd flip through this Beckett price guide. I have a friend of mine, his name is Jason. 
And uh, Jason used to do the exact same thing. He was obsessed with baseball cards, more than even me. And uh, one of his favorite players is a guy that's actually on the cover of this magazine, uh, Ken Griffey Jr. He loved Ken Griffey Jr. growing up. And in fact, he had eight of Ken Griffey Jr.'s rookie cards. And, And according to Beckett, when he flipped through his Beckett, it said that each one of those rookie cards was worth $100. And so like fourth grade, Jason decides, okay, I don't want to get rid of all of them. But how about half? I'm going to go make myself 400 bucks right now. And so his dad gets home from work and he delivers the plan to his father. And he's like, okay, dad, okay, I want you to take me up to the hobby shop and I'm going to sell four of my cards. Beckett says they're worth hundred bucks a piece. So I'm going to go get myself $400. And his dad looks at him. He's like, son, it's not going to work like that. That guy's not going to give you hundred dollars a piece. And he looks at him like, dad, you're kind of a fool. I don't know if you know how this works, but Beckett says they're worth hundred. So I'm going to get my $400. I got four of them, four times hundred, not very difficult math, $400. His dad looks at him, he says, fine. And he takes him up to the hobby store. He walks in and he slaps those four cards on the counter. He busts out his beck and he says, right here, these are worth $100 a piece, so I'd like my $400. And the guy looks at him, he says, I'm not gonna give you $400 for those. He says, well, how much are you gonna give me? And he goes, I don't know. How about 20 bucks a pop? And that's being generous. He goes, $80? He goes, no, 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 you don't understand. But Beckett says that each one of these cards is worth 100 bucks, so I should get $400. And the owner of that store looked at him and he said, boy, I'm about to teach you a valuable lesson today. Those cards are worth whatever somebody is willing to pay. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus paid full price for you because you are worth it. You are worth whatever someone is willing to pay. And Jesus paid full price for you. And even though you may not be convinced that anyone else thinks that highly of you, your creator showed you that he thinks that highly of you when he sent his son to die on a cross for you. I started out asking this question, what would you change about you? And you probably can see where I'm going with this because you all are are smart people and I I don't want you to get me wrong. God probably doesn't mind us changing certain things about ourselves. Is your weight getting in the way of you really enjoying and experiencing life? Then yes, by all means, God probably wouldn't mind if you lost a couple of pounds. Are you naturally a really introverted person and walking into a room like this, I mean, it just kind of terrifies you and striking up conversation with new people is kind of something that terrifies you? Then yeah, absolutely. God probably does want to stretch you a little bit in that area. Are you a person that's exceedingly impatient? Then yeah, God probably wants you to take steps to improve that about yourself, but make no mistake about it. God loves you exactly as you are. He sent his son to die for you, knowing everything about you. Literally everything. I mean, think about that for a minute. He knows every dark thought that's gone through your head. He knows every lustful thought. He knows every, every moment where you've said that thing under your breath that you wouldn't dare admit to another human being. He knows everything. And in the midst of that, he still sent his son to die for you. In a letter titled Romans, Paul is writing a letter to the early Christian church living in, in Rome. And, and he puts into words so well what we're talking about here this morning. He expresses so well how much God loves you. It says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us. Read that with me. While we were still sinners. 
Not when we had it all figured out. Not, not when we suddenly got our act together. While we were still screwing up, while we were still sinners, he declared his love for you. He declared that you are worth it by dying for you. Don't miss this. There is nothing, nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there is nothing you can do to make God love you less. When Jesus sacrificed himself for you in one all-loving statement, he said, indeed, that you are worth it. And unlike my foolish moments, unlike your definitely not worth it moments where we would certainly not do that again, I'm convinced that Jesus would. He'd go through the same suffering. He'd go through the same pain. He'd go through the same humiliation, the same embarrassment. He would take on the same collective weight of all of our sin because he places such tremendous value on you because he loves you that much because you are absolutely worth it.